Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Ideally, it is my intention to get through two psalms tonight, Psalm 53 and Psalm 54. They are both short psalms, not particularly complicated psalms, and yet they do have a bit of background and they loom large theologically. Psalm 53 is actually very much like Psalm 14. It is sort of imported from book one of the Psalms into book two of the Psalms. You know, I heard once upon a time the noted theological giant, uh, Jimmy Swaggart. That's the guy. That's the guy, yeah. Uh, I heard him once say that if the first point of Calvinism, which would be man's total depravity, he said if that is true, then the other four points have to be true. And then, of course, he argued that point one is not true and that men, by their free will, have the capability to choose God and then could ignore the other four points. But in Psalm 14, as well as in Psalm 53, we find the words that Paul himself cites in Romans 3 in order to prove the depravity of human beings. So whether we're talking about Old Testament or New Testament, this idea of the complete corruption of man is made very, very obvious. Therefore, everything we believe about grace leading to salvation is inevitable because if human beings have no capability, certainly if they're as completely powerless as David is about to describe, then if anybody gets saved... It has to be the grace of God. It can't possibly be human will, human determination, or anything within us. For instance, turn back to Psalm 14 for just a moment. Psalm 14 starts with the same three verses that we're going to find in Psalm 53. And Psalm 14 ends with the exact same phrase as Psalm 53 ends with. So first, in both of these psalms, what we see is David saying that there just is nothing good within mankind, but then it ends with David declaring that God is going to defend his own people, in this case, defend Israel, and then finally David concludes by looking forward to the promised kingdom to come. That's both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Psalm 14 starts, the fool has said in his heart. The Bible has a great deal to say about foolishness and wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So then a foolish heart would say, there is no God. I have no fear of God whatsoever. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. 
and there is no one who does good. So how many people do good? There's no one who does good. David is emphatic about that in verse 2. Yahweh, the Lord, looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who do understand. That can also be translated who act with knowledge, who act wisely. And then he defines what it would be to act wisely. Those who would seek after God. So God looked down from heaven on the whole of mankind to see if there was anybody wise enough to seek after God. Verse 3 concludes, they have all turned aside. Altogether they have become corrupt. And there is no one who does good. And just in case you think, well, maybe someone, he then adds the phrase, not even one. There's just nobody who does good, and in this context, doing good is defined as seeking after God. So God looked at all mankind to see if there was anybody who was wise enough to seek him, and there was nobody, not even one. Then David writes in Psalm 14, Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do they not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation or the righteous posterity. And you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. And then verse 7, which we're also going to see over in Psalm 53. Psalm 7 says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. So David is looking forward to the establishment of the kingdom, which is going to happen when the salvation of Israel finally comes to Zion. So his view of the future kingdom is exactly like our view of the future kingdom. It is exactly like John's view of the future kingdom that we saw in the book of Revelation. It includes the restoration of Israel, the restoring of Yahweh's captive people, when Jacob rejoices and Israel is glad. Now, turn to Psalm 53, and you will see how similar this is. Psalm 53 starts with the same three verses. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and they have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, anyone who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one that does good, not even one. Okay, so David wrote that in Psalm 14 and wrote it in one context and then restates it again in Psalm 53. And the second part of this psalm is slightly different than Psalm 14, meaning that David wrote this assessment of human capability twice. He's stressing it, he says it repeatedly so that we will understand that David's theology, the biblical theology, 
the anthropology that the Bible advances is that human beings are just no darn good. There's just nothing in them that would look for God, and God saw that there was none of them that understood, so that none of them sought after God. And every one of them has turned aside from God altogether, collectively, as a group. They have become corrupt, and none of them does good, not even one. So then, would you say, um, making Jesus your Lord and Savior, would that be a good thing? Yes. Uh, there's none that do good. Would you say that choosing God and revving up your own faith in God, would you say that was a good thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's none that do good. Any of these Arminian theologies that start with you, that tell you how good you are, how able you are, how capable you are, that you have the ability to obligate God. You have the ability to choose Jesus. You have the responsibility to make him the Lord and Savior. By the way, you don't make him anything. He is already Lord. He makes you saved. You don't accomplish anything by your own will or your own determination in order to obligate God to save you. Therefore, since you're incapable of doing it because there's no one who does any good thing, therefore, if anybody gets saved, it has to be God by his grace, choosing, electing, predestining, determining that he is going to save certain people so that all of the glory redounds to him. Now, that sounds like very sovereign gracey, Calvinistic-y, reform-y kind of theology. But it's just Bible. It's just what the Bible plainly says. So for all the folks who disagree with us theologically, they're disagreeing with what the Bible actually says. So I'll ask you a quick question. Uh, Did David write twice now in the Old Testament in the Psalms that there's no one capable of doing any good? Did he say that? He did. Okay, well then, how can you develop a theology that tells people, do something good? Go choose. Go decide. Go act your will. Go stir up your faith. Go obligate God on the basis of you. That's an impossible theological construct, and yet it runs throughout the church world and is very, very popular. Now, based on the fact that David has said that a couple of times, Paul picks it up in the New Testament, so turn to Romans 3. In the midst of Paul declaring that Jews are guilty and Gentiles are guilty and everybody's guilty and that God has purposefully put everybody under bondage so that all salvation is a result of his mercy. In the midst of all that, Paul quotes right from what we just read. And he intersperses it with a bit of what Isaiah also wrote because Isaiah advanced the exact same theology. Let's start reading at Romans 3, verse 9. What then... Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles, are all under sin. And how does Paul defend that notion? 
that Jews, Gentiles, all human beings are all charged with sin, are all already guilty? Well, he quotes the scripture. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So he's quoting what David has already concluded. So whether you're looking at the Old Testament, whether you're looking at the New Testament, you're seeing the exact same theology. You're seeing the same soteriology. You're seeing the same anthropology. You're seeing that human beings are completely incapable. There is none, no one who's righteous. By the way, who then would be the righteous one? Yeah, God's the righteous one. Christ is the righteous one. What human beings? None. There are no descendants of Adam who are righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. Same thing David was saying. There's none that because of their own internal wisdom or capability went after God. Because there is none who seeks for God. All of them have turned aside. Together they have become useless, and there is no one who does good, there is not even one. So David has declared that there's no one who's righteous, not even one, and there's no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you're reading from an NASB like I am, all of those that I just read are quotations and all taken from the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms, part of it from Isaiah. So the point that I am driving right now, and you can turn back to Psalm 53, the point that I'm driving right now is that this theology that we advance of man's total depravity is not only biblically supported, but we are simply supporting what the Bible says. It's not like we came up with a notion and then found a verse to... uh, add a little bit of support to what we already believe. We are forced to believe in the depravity of human beings because the Bible says it. Therefore, the other points are inevitable, unavoidable. If anybody's going to get saved, it is because God did the saving. He sent his son to atone for those people. The grace of God is indeed irresistible, or else we, who never do good, would resist it, and we are going to persevere to the end. So the other four points of the tulip doctrine are the natural result of what the Bible declares about human depravity. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now David is going to say something slightly different. 
This is why I said it's two different contexts, slightly different conclusion, but David emphasized that idea of human incapability at least twice here. Verse 4 says, have the workers of wickedness no knowledge? Okay, he began by saying the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So now David's kind of marveling at that and saying the workers of this wickedness have no capability of thinking clearly. They have no knowledge. And yet they eat up the godly. They eat up my people as though they ate bread and they have not called upon God. It's the same today. The enemies of God, the enemies of Christianity, the enemies of the Bible continue to oppose us. Jesus said that we were going to be hated in this world because they hate him. They're going to hate us. And they devour us the way they eat up bread. Verse 5 says, there they were in great fear. So David seems to be leaping to their ultimate judgment. There they were in great fear where no fear had previously been. When they were walking through this lifetime, devouring the people of God, doing all kinds of damage, hating on God, they didn't have any fear. They didn't have any fear of God. They didn't have any fear that they were going to stand in judgment. But one day they're going to stand before the God of ages and suddenly where there was no fear, they're going to be overwhelmed with fear. In fact, David calls it great fear. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. There's some debate about who that pronoun is referring to, the you at the end there. It might be referring to God since he's the direct antecedent here. God scattered the bones of him who encamped against God. Or it might be saying that God has scattered the bones of those who were the enemies of Israel, and that's why Israel was ultimately able to defeat them. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. If, again, the you is referring to Israel, then the king of Israel, David, is explaining that the reason that they had any success against their enemies who hated them so badly and ate them like bread, the reason they were able to deflect against them and conquer them was because God himself had already rejected them. The same way that it is God who gives authority to win a battle or sometimes in the Old Testament would not go with his armies and they would get defeated. It is clear that God is the deciding factor in these battles. And so David is emphasizing that God shames those who are opposed to him in this world, and that's why they are ultimately defeated. But then verse 6, he says the same thing he said at the end of Psalm 14. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Clearly a messianic phrase. He's looking forward to the promise that he's been given in the Davidic covenant that one of his seed, one of his progeny out of his loins was going to come, the Messiah who would establish the kingdom and that there would finally be a time of peace and a collecting of the tribes of Israel. And he is looking forward to that moment. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. 
when God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So, depravity of man, David says it a couple of times, he's very clear about it. Restoration of Israel through the Messiah, the establishing of the kingdom, and peace and safety and joy coming to Jacob and Israel, he's also very firm about that. He repeats that a couple of times. He sees that as the unavoidable result of the promises God has given him. And we would say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's everything we believe. Yeah, we believe that human beings are just no good, and we believe in the kingdom to come. And that takes us to Psalm 54. Psalm 54 says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a maskil, we've seen that word a few times. It means a contemplative psalm, something that is didactic, teaching, something for you to think about. But then he tells us when he wrote it. It was when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? So what is that about? Well, let's start by learning that. That is actually back in 1 Samuel. So turn back to 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. And I'm going to start reading at verse 15, which starts, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life. So yet again, Saul is pursuing David with intention of killing David because he is aware that David is the future king of Israel. The people are gathering and supporting David. And so Saul feels threatened by David and wants to kill him so that his own succession, his own house, will be the future kings. David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph in Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south side of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, Come down according to all the desire of your soul and do so. And our part shall be to surrender him to the king's hands. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there. For I am told that he's very cunning. He's very clever. So before I come up there to kill him, go back and make sure he's actually there. Verse 23. 
So look and learn about all his hiding places where he hides himself. And return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall come about, if he is in the land, that I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David, and his men were about to seize them. Okay, so David's trapped. David's cornered. He's hiding around the other side of the mountain. The men of Saul are coming around both sides of the mountain. They're about to capture David. It looks like he's a goner when God intervenes. And the way God intervenes is to bring the Philistines down on Judah so that the king has to go deal with that problem. And the king is just about to capture David. He's all set. He's all excited. I finally got him. My mortal enemy. I've captured him. And just at the moment that they were surrounding David and his men to seize them, verse 27, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come with us for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. How clever of God. How perfect was God's timing Right at that moment when David was definitely going to get captured, God brought the Philistines in. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, they called that place the Rock of Escape. Because that's the place where David just narrowly escaped. And David went up from there, and he stayed in the strongholds of the En Gedi. Okay, so now turn to the psalm. Now we know the background of the psalm. It's only seven verses. It's a short psalm, but it's kind of divided into two parts. The first part, David is begging God for help. He thinks he is cornered. He sees himself as being in trouble. He's crying out to God, save me, God. The second half seems to be written after he sees the outcome. After Saul gets called away, after he narrowly escapes, and he gets his mind right yet again. We've seen this so often in the Psalms, where David starts a psalm with desperation, and by the end of the psalm, he's praising God. The end of this psalm is him stating, God delivered me, and God will deliver me, and I'm sure of it, because he has a promise from God. He has the promise of the throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the 12 tribes. He's going to be the king. It's going to be his offspring that are going to lead to the Messiah. He has all those covenants and promises from God. And yet, his circumstances looked really terrible. His circumstances looked scary. His circumstances caused him to cry out to God, vindicate me by your power. Save me. Don't let me be defeated. 
And then God saves him, and he gets his mind right. And the second half is, behold, the Lord is my helper. (laughs) I'm okay. So here's the first half of the psalm. Save me, O God, by your name. In other words, by your own reputation, by your own strength, by your own authority, by your own power. David knew he couldn't do it. And yet, he cries to God, save me for your sake. You've made a promise. You've made a covenant with me. Save me by your own name. And vindicate me by your power. You got to do it. I can't do it. They're surrounding me. They're about to kill me. So vindicate me. Lift me up. Demonstrate that I am, in fact, the very one who you have chosen to be the future king of Israel. And my seed is going to lead to the Messiah. You've made me these promises. But at this moment, I'm about to get killed. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. He's pleading with God at this point. Please hear me. Bend low. Put your ear to me. Pay attention to my prayer. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. That's right. The Ziphites had risen against him and made a deal with Saul, and that's why he was about to be captured. Strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before them. Obviously, they don't realize that God has already made a covenant with David. Jonathan seemed to understand it. Jonathan, Saul's son, said, you're going to be the king, and I'm going to sit right beside you. But the Ziphites and all those that were following Saul had no regard for the things that God had promised or that God had determined. Therefore, as part of his plea, David is saying, look, they're godless people. (laughs) I'm your chosen future king. So get them. Conquer them. Save me. Help me. Violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before themselves. And then he adds, Selah. Think of that. Ponder that for a moment. Ponder that this was my situation. Think about the fact that I was facing sure and certain death. Saul wanted me dead. The Ziphites, in order to gain political power with Saul, are turning me over to Saul. They're making deals against me, and they're going to destroy my life. That's the situation I'm in. Think about that. And then starting at verse 4, David has his, his view of God readjusted as he yet again sees God deliver him by moving whole armies and moving whole nations in order to accomplish the salvation of one person. It's pretty amazing. So David says, look at this. That's what behold means. Pay attention to this. Look at this. Let me show you this. Behold, God is my helper. A minute ago, he was crying, help me. 
But then when God delivered him, he said, look, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He's the one that kept my life going. It looked like I was dead. And now I'm alive again. And all the promises of God continue in my life. Why? Not because of me, but because of the power of God, again, in moving armies and nations and peoples in order to accomplish his own purposes, his own promises. And he does it all by his own authority. Look at this. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. And he will recompense the evil to my foes. And he will destroy them in his own faithfulness. God in being faithful to his own word. God in being faithful to his own covenants. God in being faithful to his own promises that he has made to David here. In the process is also conquering the enemies of David. So the question is, how much did David do here? I mean, how much did he defend himself here? Nothing. Did he and his mighty men draw their swords and go into battle and conquer? Nope. No, absolutely not. God delivered him, and David is recognizing that it's all God. It has to be God. By the way, I suppose we could draw a parallel between this and the previous psalm in that the previous psalm says all men are corrupt, all men are depraved, There's nobody who stirred himself up to seek after God. Therefore, we can conclude that if anybody gets saved, it has to be God. It has to be by God's power. It has to be God's determination and his grace that brings anybody to salvation. The same thing here. David's life got saved, and it wasn't because of David. It wasn't because of his power, his authority, his decision, his might. It wasn't even his mighty men that did it. He was saved because God, for his own sake, for his own faithfulness to his own promises, he saved David. So who saved you, Micah? He did. And why? Because of his grace. Because of his grace, yeah. And it can't be any other way, can it? It just has to be that way. So whether we're talking, if you take these two psalms and you put them together, whether you're talking about eternal salvation, well, that's all God. But even if you're talking about having another day where you don't have a life-threatening disease, even as you had something to eat today, even as you woke up and had clothes to put on or a car to drive or a job to go to or just somebody who loved you, did you do that? No. God did all of that. You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, no, it was partially me. Because I went to work, I did the work, I earned the money, I showed up, I did that. Yeah, well, while you were doing that, you were breathing God's air. While you were doing that, you were living on his planet, and he can drop you like a two-inch putt anytime he wants to. (laughs) Little golfing reference there for you. He can flick you anytime he wants. He can end your life You live by one nostril full of air at a time. All he has to do is cut off that supply and you're dead. 
And then you're facing the judgment. The very fact that you're here or healthy or have the capability to go do the work to get the money, that's still God. Mm -hmm. Everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that you know, and even the air you breathe all belongs to him. So he gets all the credit, whether we're talking about eternal salvation, whether we're talking about temporal salvation, he gets all the credit. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes and destroy them in his own faithfulness. So willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, to your authority, to your power, O Yahweh, for it, interestingly enough, it is good. In the last psalm we read, there's nobody good. There's nobody that does good. There's nobody that stirred himself up to seek after God. There's no goodness among human beings, but the very name of Yahweh, the very existence and the power of Yahweh is truly good. That's what we were talking about on Sunday, that God being a holy, righteous God, everything he does is by definition then holy and righteous because it's being done by a holy and righteous God. He is good. We are not. Now, by the way, this reference to willingly I will sacrifice to you is actually something you can find back in Numbers 15, the first three verses. We're not going to turn there for sake of time. But that's the place where you find God explaining how to make an offering that creates an aroma that is pleasing to God. And he says that you can do that during your feasts, during your festivals, but you can also do it as a votive offering. In other words, after you've paid all your tithes, after you've done all your sacrifices, after you've given all the requirements that the law requires, if you wanted to give God something beyond that just for the sheer pleasure and praise of God, and so you wanted to give him an offering that would send a sweet savor, a sweet aroma into his nostrils so that he experiences his people praising him. One of the ways that you can do that is willingly. The King James calls it a free will offering. It's the only place in the whole Bible where you find the phrase free will. And here David is making reference to that that not only is he going to do everything that the law requires in terms of sacrifice to God and praise and worship to God in his temple, but then he's going to sacrifice above and beyond that, and he's going to do it willingly. Willingly I will sacrifice to you, and I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he delivered me from all my trouble and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Now, the words with satisfaction are added by the NASB translators, but that seems to be the implication. What is written in the Hebrew is simply that I looked upon my enemies. I saw my enemies. They were so close to him. They were closing in on him from both sides. He was able to see them coming when apparently there was a trumpet blown and a gathering from the king, we got to get back home 
because we have to go and defend our land from the Philistines who have descended upon us. So David is saying, I saw them, and yet he is satisfied in God even in the face of his enemies. So I do see little correlations between those two. For instance, we agree with Psalm 53 that uh, there's just no one good. We agree that human beings are depraved. We agree that it has to be God by his grace and kindness that is good to people and saves people. So we agree with that. But we also agree, since there's none that does good, we also agree that it can't be the will of man, the decision of man, or the flesh of man that obligates God in order to bring about salvation. But we do understand that God says that we can please him by giving him the sacrifice of praise, by using our bodies in ways that they are our reasonable spiritual service before God. And David demonstrates that as well. So even though that's Old Testament psalm stuff, it reverberates into the New Testament and continues the theology that we agree with, that we understand from the beginning. Questions? Good stuff. It is good stuff, isn't it? Just yes, sir. Kind of piggyback on what you were saying about going into the New Testament with, you know, no good works. But then, you know, you get into the New Testament, you read things, you know, like well, bearing fruit and um, that we are to stir one another up to love and to good works and that the, uh, the man of God must be complete and equipped for every good work and all these references to uh, good works. And then, you know, Ephesians 2.10 just really encapsulates all of that and gives credit shows where those good works come from. That we were his workmanship. We were his workmanship created yeah. in Christ Jesus for, for good, good works, works that he before ordained that we should walk in them. So yeah. all of those works that exist, they're not from us, they're by his grace as well, thereby yeah. giving him all the more glory. And they are only good because he determined them. Right. He's doing them through us. That gives them goodness despite us. It's kind of like Jesus saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and without me you can do nothing. In order for them to have the qualitative nature of being good, they have to come from him. They They have to be attached to him, yeah. Are you saying then that the Bible is sort of consistent with itself? Is that kind of what you're... (laughs) No, that's good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.